the war in some ways has actually boosted people's support because people get one-time payouts, big cash payouts, if one of their men dies or is wounded fighting in the war. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 28th. It's been a little over one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. And today, Julia Yaffe joins me to talk about the view from the ground in Russia. And not just in the Kremlin, but in the villages and far-flung towns that are sending their children to die in the war. Their opinion on the deadly conflict with no end in sight might surprise you. Julia explains. And later on, Bill Cohan drops by to talk about the death and rebirth of Credit Suisse, one of the wildest sagas on Wall Street. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. Uh, Julia, how are you? I'm good. I'm a little raspy. I brought back some kind of nasty bug from Munich and still sick over a week later, and I lost my voice on Friday. Mm. So this mm. is a massive improvement. So if I sound like shit, you know why. So Julia, there's been a lot of TV coverage and essays and think pieces on the one year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. I want to look forward with you, though. You have a piece coming out shortly on Puck about what the Russians are just thinking about it these days, you know, looking forward, how things have changed over the last year. And I want to start with the view from the ground up, uh, you know, and like sort of the struggle between the power elites. But what are the people on the ground in Russia think right now? Are they fed up? Uh, short answer is no, they're not. The slightly longer answer is that depending on which poll you look at or sociologist or pollster you talk to, the support for the war is anywhere between 70 and 75% of Mm. the Russian population. And that breaks down to about 20 to 25% hardcore supporters who are like, march all the way to Kiev, Mm. don't stop until Ukraine surrenders unilaterally and unconditionally, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And then the rest, 50 to 55%, are kind of more squishy and Mm -hmm. it's a kind of rally around the flag support slash going along with the majority. Mm -hmm. If people were shocked by the war and didn't expect it a year ago, at this point, Putin and his propaganda machine have very effectively convinced them to think that this is an existential battle for Russia and the whole West is ganging up together on Russia and Sure, we don't like war, but we're in it now, and so we got to win because you got to root for your team. You certainly can't root for the others because they'll destroy us, and they want to destroy everything Russian. And if we lose this war, 
the thinking is, you know, that's what's coming from people's television screens, is if we lose this war, Russia will cease to exist, the Russian language will cease to exist, Russian culture will cease to exist. It's been framed in these ethno-nationalist, but also like cultural fascist kind of terms. And Mm. people have mostly accepted that, uh, it seems. The other thing is that I read a thing, uh, we're recording this on Monday, I read something that came out today from the Levada Center, which is a very old independent sociological polling center, one of the first Hmm. in Russia to do any kind of public polling. And they Hmm. said that Americans and Westerners were like, well, when all these coffins start coming home, right, the Russian casualty count is somewhere. I was at Munich. uh, The Estonian defense minister told me it was about a quarter million, 250,000 Russian soldiers dead or wounded in a year. It's fucking insane. Yeah. Right. And we're seeing more and more videos of these coffins coming home. But what we're also seeing is last week there was a video from the Novosibirsk airport of a room that just had coffins stacked one on top of each other, like four or five high, all the way down the room. And people counted and was well over 100 coffins. These were Russian war dead. And the camera zoomed in on one of the papers tagged to the coffin. The internet did the internet thing. And Mm -hmm. it turned out this was a guy who was 39 years old from a small village in the Novosibirsk region. He was in debt, and so he joined the army because the pay was much, much bigger, and there is debt forgiveness now attached to joining the army because so many Russians are in debt. Mm -hmm. So you can get your debts forgiven if you join the military. Hmm. So he joined. His debt was under $1,000, and now he was home in a box. What Lovato found, considering the fact that the average Russian salary is 22,000 rubles a month, that's about 300 or $350 a month. The war in some ways has actually boosted people's support because people get one-time payouts, big cash payouts, if one of their men dies or is wounded fighting in the war. Huh. People don't really value their own lives that much. There is hmm. no hope, no future, no... I mean. Russia going into the war was one of the most economically unequal countries in the world. And this is where Mm -hmm. inequality becomes a national security issue, right? Mm -hmm. Russia had one of the biggest wealth gaps in the world. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, Putin created this underclass where not only were these people poor, but their lives literally did not matter. It's funny, like the that sort of reflects my rather distant point of view from Russia and this conflict. And this is not to disparage our mutual friends, we have lots of friends who have been in Ukraine putting lives online, journalists. But the coverage I see out of Russia, often on television, whenever they talk to a Russian person on the street, and you know, maybe there's a brave young person who's willing to criticize Putin when an American news channel sticks a camera and mic in their face. But usually the point of view you see from Russia on television is like someone who lives in one of the big cities, you know, and like they are one willing to be more critical. And two, they have like, Maybe some cool designer clothes on. They look, you know, and they may have some, you know, upper mobility or income. You don't hear from the uh, the, the poor village folks very much, is guess what I'm trying to say. Well, and that's what you're and, saying, and pointing the people out. from the big cities aren't the ones doing the fighting and dying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But also the people in the big cities are scared, even if they don't support the war. The mm-hmm. crackdown is real. There have been over 6,000 criminal cases opened. And you hear crazy stories come out of Russia, like I told you about this, this couple in southern Russia who went to a restaurant, and the woman's Ukrainian, and they were talking to each other just at their table. 
and expressing their discontent with the war and the fact that they don't like it. Fellow diners called the cops on them and the cops showed up, slammed them into the ground face down. The woman was like, yeah, that's right. Slava Ukraina, you know, glory to Ukraine, fuck all of you. And she was handcuffed and dragged away to jail. People are scared. And when I, I spoke to a childhood friend of mine who still lives in Russia and she hates the war. She's very much against it. She's never been a fan of Putin, etc. But she's gone back to her regular life. And I think this is very important, is that Russians don't want to think about this war, much like Americans didn't really want to think about Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. As much as they can keep it out of their lives and keep from thinking about it, the better. And she's gone back to her life. She's thinking about her kids and where they need to go for their after-school activities and you know, what she's making for dinner and what she has to do for work. And I'm so sorry, but that's kind of morally repugnant. Like, look at what your country is doing every day. Like, aren't you outraged? And she was Mm -hmm. like, sure I am. But what do you want me to do about it? You want me to go out in the street with a poster? They'll round me up in 30 seconds. They'll Mm -hmm. send me off to jail. I won't see my kids for a decade. And it's not going to stop the war. She's like, I'm scared of them. They're, they're scary. Yeah. So there's a sense that it's futile and it's scary. What's the point of view in the Kremlin right now? Not necessarily Putin's eye and whether he wants to negotiate or not. But, you know, what do politicians think? They, I think, are very unclear as to what Putin wants and what his goals are. And that it's going to be a very long war because he has not clearly defined victory for them. Mm-hmm. And so you have these wild theories going around about how this could end. One person proposed to me that at a bare minimum, Russia needs to get those four regions that they annexed. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you just get them at a minimum? He's like, <laughs> yeah. what, do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? Russia doesn't, they don't occupy it right now. <laughs> no. You don't get to have that. And it also feels like this war has hardened their national identity in a, in a way that it might not have been the case two years ago. Ukraine is more proud than they've ever been. Well, also, but also they've seen what happens under Russian occupation, right? Mm -hmm. In Kherson, after they liberated it, they found a jail that was specifically for teenagers and kids. Mm -hmm. Like they would arrest and torture teenagers to find out what their parents were doing. No Ukrainians can be friendly toward Russia. I don't know what these people are smoking. (laughs) And then today I heard an even crazier idea out of Moscow. Do you want to hear it? Go for it. Apparently, this idea is getting traction. Uh, My friend Misha Zigut, who wrote uh, All the Kremlin's Men, but he's still very much in touch with the kind of oligarchic elite in Moscow. And he was, he told me that this idea is getting traction, that this war will end with a Yalta 2.0. So the meeting (laughs) in early, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But it gets better readers who need a brushing up on their history. Yalta was the conference in early 1945 when Winston Churchill, FDR, and Stalin met and said that after we beat Hitler, this is how we're going to carve up Europe into our spheres of influence. So this is how Russian oligarchic set thinks this war is going to end. Yalta 2.0. Guess where they think this will happen? Um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) they think it should happen in fiji oh delightful (laughs) because (laughs) it's between the u.s and china 
And uh-huh. so those are the two big superpowers in the world. And they should, of course, be at the table to settle this conflict. You know, China mm-hmm. now has this ridiculous peace plan, which is basically Russia's negotiating points from like December 2021. And the third, who was the third power at Yalta, who used to be a great global power, but was greatly reduced, represented by Winston Churchill. And that part will be played by Vladimir Putin. Putin will be the Churchill at Yalta 2.0. Oh, great. When I think Putin, the first person that comes to mind is Churchill, for sure. That doesn't feel like it's going to happen. Um, Fiji is delightful this time of year, I'm sure. But I don't think uh, people would consent to that. And I don't think the United States would uh, at this point either, even though, you know, they kind of would want peace talks to happen, but not on Russian terms purely. Maybe, maybe President DeSantis would be like, you know what, Putin is is the new Churchill. Mm. Yeah, maybe they're waiting for the next uh, the next president. You never know. Or waiting to help him win in the next election. I wasn't going to say that, but you did. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for explaining all this stuff. We appreciate it. You're so welcome. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about Credit Suisse. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Happy Tuesday, Bill. Hey, Ben. Thank you. Bill, I was uh, just catching up on my finance news over the weekend. And one statistic in particular that jumped out at me is that Credit Suisse, the European banking giant that has been around for a million years, lost money in five out of the last eight years in the middle of probably the greatest bull market, um, if not in history, certainly in memory. I don't know how it's possible to lose so much money over the last decade, but you've been reporting on Credit Suisse for a long time. How did that happen? Oh well, Ben. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a you know a combination of a variety of things. Whether the Green Sill scandal, the Archegos scandal, Spygate, the internal fighting among two sides of the bank, really the asset management and money management side, which of course is what the bank you know was founded on in the eighteenth. 50s and has always been the strength of the bank and then sort of trying to get into the investment banking business, you know, beginning in the 1970s and um, sort of perfecting it in the 1980s when the bank made an investment in what was called First Boston, uh, which was a real powerhouse on Wall Street, uh, you know, in the 1980s, thanks to Bruce Wasserstein and Joe Perella, uh, who were running the investment banking part of the business. And then Credit Suisse 
kept incrementally buying more and more in first Boston until it basically owned the whole thing. And it was probably never a, a great fit between the two sides of the firm, uh, you know, with the uh, asset management and wealth management business being in, in Switzerland and first Boston being in New York. There was just a, always a culture clash and always, um, you know, a desire to try to compete with the bulge bracket firms. And, you know, aside from sort of the brief supernova of the days before it went sour, it never really worked like it should have. Did Credit Suisse always have a reputation as sort of a, a big risk taker? I mean, you mentioned the green sill scandal and the, the Archegos blow up. I mean, those are really risky trades that obviously exploded in, in the bank's face. Have they just like gotten unlucky more than other banks? Or is there something about the, the culture over there that led to those mistakes? Well, I, I mean, again, you know, they were sort of like a, a staid and steady, you know, Swiss bank uh, for most of the time for more than like 120 years until they decided to get into investment banking by connecting with First Boston here in, in New York. I mean, risk-taking is an art. And I think, you know, there was a period of time when Brady Dugan was running the bank, uh, who was an investment banker from First Boston, uh, and that probably was the heyday of this combination. But that kind of ended in 2015 when Tijan TM uh, was recruited to replace Dugan from Prudential PLC in, in London and that never worked out. And it's basically been downhill since 2015, pretty much. You mentioned they had the, the spinoff plans. There's a, a turnaround plan that has been announced that involves firing a lot of people, slimming down the size of the business. Can you tell me more about how they plan to resurrect this bank? Yeah. So now, uh, you know, with one problem after another, the stock price slowly sinking into the West, uh, it's really, you know, the bank has now got a market value of around you know, $15 billion, you know, compared to, say, J.P. Morgan Chase, which has a market value of around $450 billion. So it's really become a sad story and a tale of woe of, of many years. And so now they've just decided finally, you know, to, to spit out First Boston and go back to its, their roots. Credit Suisse will go back to its roots as, you know, money management and asset management. So now they're in the process of spitting out First Boston and spinning it off as its own private investment bank run by the, you know, ubiquitous and always a guy who always manages to uh, land on his feet, um, Michael Klein, who was, uh, you know, once upon a time, a big uh, head of investment banking at Citigroup and then went off on his own and was involved in any number of uh, big M&A deals and was a bit of a spat king for a while, one point being worth a billion dollars. I don't think he is anymore. And Credit Suisse, they brought him in as a consultant. I think he might have even been on the board. And, you know, I guess the result of him being a consultant is that they agreed to spin off First Boston, get out of investment banking with Michael Klein as the CEO, and they bought his advisory business for $175 million in stock. So, Basically, uh, his incentive now is to try to spin this thing off as a viable entity, trying to figure out what it should do as, you know, M&A advisory, some underwriting, 
maybe even some Wall Street research, trying to raise capital uh, for this business so it can, you know, try to compete. But I'm sure his end game and his incentives are all about either trying to sell this business to somebody else, if somebody would have it, or taking it public uh, in an IPO. And then I don't know how that would go because there's really very few IPOs anyway right now, let alone one for a fledgling investment bank. So the whole thing is sort of... um, you know, probably doomed at this point. Um, we'll have to see what happens, of course. It could be a roaring success under Michael Klein. He always manages to figure things out and make money for himself. It's also, it's hard to imagine a better outcome for a consultant that you're you're brought in to advise on a turnaround plan. And it turns out that the turnaround plan that you are recommending and that the company agrees to do is to buy your boutique firm, pay you to then take over a combined spin-out entity and, and, and run it. It sounds like things turned out pretty well for Klein if he can manage to uh, to turn this company around and to sell it. It's sort of like uh, you know Dick Cheney becoming George W. Bush's vice yes, president exactly. after running the selection process exactly uh, for vice president. Bill, if you had to take a bet, um, do you think that Klein and his his spin out entity, First Boston, or the remaining company with its wealth management business, is going to be more successful in the long run? Well, I think if Credit Suisse gets back to its roots, I mean, it's just lost a tremendous amount of competitive territory compared to UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland, its main competitor for global and wealth management. I suspect that, uh, you know, over time, Credit Suisse, which has been around, you know, since the 1850s, uh, will resurrect itself as a decent um, uh, manager of other people's money. First Boston, the investment bank, I just, uh, you know, it's hard, so hard to kill these things. There's so many near-death experiences with these banks. And, uh, you know, look, it took a near meltdown of the financial markets to uh, lead to the demise of both, uh, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman and pretty much Merrill Lynch, although it's now tucked inside of Bank of America. Uh, We almost lost Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, of course. You know, it could sort of stumble along as a, kind of quasi-irrelevant third-tier M&A advisor and underwriter. It also could get hot. It doesn't take much, you know. Uh, Back in the days when Frank Quattrone was there and Mr. Tech M&A banker, you know, First Boston was also hot after Bruce and, and Joe left. So it could get hot again. You know, a lot of competition in its, you know, tier as well. So, you know, I don't think you know, maybe Michael Klein can pull it off or pull it off for a little while. Again, I think his incentive is to to sell it. And so if he can possibly sell it, that's what he'll do is my bet. Well, like you said, Bill, it's hard to kill these things. And it, it seems like in a way, these banks never truly die anyway. They are just absorbed or eaten by someone else and, and live on inside uh, another bank. So that's that's the circle of life for you on Wall Street. Yes, the circle of life. All right, Bill, thanks so much for stopping by. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.